You're listening to the Diabetic Running Podcast, helping people run their blood sugars one workout at a time. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 13 of the Diabetic Running Podcast. Today, I'm super excited to interview Dr. Sherry Kohlberg, who is one of the world's leading experts on diabetes and athletics. She's the author of the Diabetic Athlete's Handbook and like over 10 other books. Dr. Sherry and I talk about the importance of motion for diabetics and her work in exercise science over the years. I also take this time to ask Dr. Sherry a bunch of really specific questions that have always been on my mind um, and to play a role in each of our lives every day as we're exercising, including insulin and glucose use. Uh, we talk about different insulins and insulin sensitivity and dieting strategies for athletes. Overall, it was just kind of fun talking to and nerding out with someone about diabetes and science for about an hour. So Dr. Sherry mentions in the interview as well, but she was also the 2016 American Diabetes Association Outstanding Educator and Diabetes Award winner. She's overall an incredible resource for us that are excited and motivated to learn about our own diabetes and how to master it kind of in our own ways, if that makes any sense. So before we jump into the interview, I wanted to take a second to announce on here formally that the show is being absorbed into Type 1 Run and will from here forth be known as the Type 1 Run Podcast. After a lot of consideration and discussion, I made the easy decision to join the Type 1 Run team. And mainly, honestly, because the mission of the Diabetic Running Podcast and Type 1 Run are one and the same. It just made too much sense. We both aim to motivate, inspire, and help Type 1 diabetics to get out and run, especially together. So combining the podcast with their resources and support, I know that we'll be able to impact as many diabetics as possible in this incredible community. My goal is to completely have the show switched over on all platforms, including here by next Monday. And don't worry, the show will remain mostly the same. Really, the only changes will be the name and the logo. The website will be closing the diabeticrunningpodcast.com, but will be absorbed by type1run.org's website. So if you go to type1run.org slash podcast, you'll be able to get all the episodes and see all the same content that was on my website to begin with. All social media will remain the same other than just have a new logo and will be called the Type 1 Run Podcast. So if you see any changes there, don't be alarmed. Overall, bear with me during the transition and thank you all for your support and for listening to the show. I know that this move will help make the show even better and allow it to reach more and inspire more people. And finally, without further ado, here's my interview with Dr. Sherry Kohlberg. So I'm joined here today by Dr. Sherry Kohlberg. Sherry, Dr. Sherry is a PhD, a world-renowned diabetes motion expert. She's an author, lecturer, consultant, researcher, exercise physiologist, a retired professor of exercise science from Old Dominion University, and once served as an adjunct professor of internal medicine for Eastern Virginia Medical School. With a bachelor's from Stanford, a master's from University of California, Davis, a PhD from California, Berkeley, she specialized in research studies and diabetes and exercise uh, the majority of her, of her career. She has authored 12 books, 300 articles, 24 book chapters on physical activity, diabetes, health, lifestyles, nutrition, and successful aging, and it seems like a lot more. And she's also founded the Diabetes Motion, a free educational website for everyone wishing to exercise with diabetes of any type, as well as diabetes, the Diabetes Motion Academy, which offers educational programs for fitness professionals and others. While accomplishing all of that, Dr. Sherry also happens to be a type 1 diabetic. Um, did I miss anything, Dr. Sherry? That sounded way too long. I should have had you edit it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's everything. Actually, I, I successfully raised three three wonderful sons as well. The youngest one just went off to college last fall. So 
Well, I'm sorry I left that out. Yeah, I know. Uh, without getting into people's you know profiles and stalking them too hard, I try not to do too much research that's not specific to diabetes. That's okay. I think it's just important though because it. Oh yeah. It's um, it's a a full life thing, and that's my whole point with diabetes is to live your your life as just as you would without diabetes, if at all possible. And that's been my goal, and why I educate people on how to do that. Yeah. So I guess before we get started and before I ask like any really specific questions to exercise or endurance and diabetes and running, take the opportunity to tell us a little bit about you and maybe when you were diagnosed and kind of how you found exercise science and, you know, diabetic athletics, so to speak. Okay. Well, it's, I've had to talk a lot about that recently because, um, in 2016, the, American Diabetes Association gave me the Outstanding Educator in Diabetes Award, and they made me do a a 30-minute talk all about myself, which is kind of a weird thing. I don't usually do that. But one of the stories I tell, uh, so I was diagnosed when I was four years old um, back in 1968, and I just didn't know anybody else who had diabetes back then. It really wasn't as talked about. There certainly weren't people you could look up on the Internet then. Um, there weren't very good tools to manage it. There was urine testing and nothing else. I was started on one shot a day. Um, but when I was uh, in my early, uh, probably a preteen, early teens, um, I went one summer to spend a week or two with my grandmother, who actually did have type 2 diabetes. And I, I have type 1 um, and she was overweight and always on a diet. And she, that summer I went to stay with her. She was on yet another diet. And for some reason, I can't remember exactly how it came about. Um, I made an agreement with her. I was helping, I was going to help her lose weight. And I was going to be kind of her, her personal trainer, her coach. Um, so I had her running laps around the backyard and I was measuring out her cottage cheese that she got to eat, which I hate, um, and just weighing her in every day. And that first week that she was on the diet, uh, well, she had agreed to pay me a dollar for every pound she lost. And in that first week, she lost eight pounds. So you can imagine this was like 40 years ago. I, I was a rich kid. Eight dollars yeah. was a lot of money. Um and so that's how I kind of started my my career in helping people live healthier lives and with weight loss and diabetes management. Um, you know, at the time, I didn't realize it's not that hard to lose 8 to 10 pounds the first week you go on a diet. And she consequently, of course, been, gained it all back and then probably more than that. But So you've been getting paid to do this from the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Well, meager amounts, but yeah. Um But it's interesting because about 10 years later when I was in graduate school and I decided to pursue, um, I kind of did athletics as a quote-unquote minor when I was in college because I was a football manager. Um, I I did a lot of sports in high school and they always made me feel better to be physically active, um, involved in things. But I didn't have any management tools that were really good. So I was never that good at stuff because who knows what my blood sugar was doing at any given time. Um, I didn't actually have a meter until I was in my mid-20s. Wow. Um, but in any case, with my, my grandmother, uh, when I was in my first graduate program, she started suffering from a lot of the cardiovascular complications that are common to, to people with diabetes 
Um, she had a major heart attack. And when I was a master's student, she had a major stroke um, at the age of 72. And then she basically, between that time and the end of her life, about five or six years later, she spent most of it stroked out in a bed, unable to communicate, not feeding herself, had partial amputations of both her legs. I mean, this is all the bad crap that you don't want to have to think about when you have diabetes. And uh, I resolved at that point that that was not going to be my fate, that I was going to live my life as, and be as healthy as possible I could throughout my lifetime. And I had pretty much reached the conclusion that exercise was a big part of that already, even though I didn't have a meter all through my childhood that told me that exercising actually helped with my blood glucose. But I just, I just, the only, it's the only thing that made me feel like I had any control over it as I was growing up. So I was always active doing something and, um, I've continued that throughout my entire adult life. Yeah. So that's my background. And so when did it evolve like into a career? When did you think like, okay, I definitely want to go to school for this and I want to make this my adult profession? Uh, I think it happened when I was an undergraduate, when I, as at, at Stanford, I was actually in a, I was actually a pre-med for a while. And then I went and I uh, volunteered in the ER at Stanford and I just, I hated it. I hated being in a hospital. I hated sick people. <laughs> I'm like, maybe this is not the career for me. And yeah, it's kind of so, negative. Yeah. I sort of did a backslash from, uh, lash on that to got as far away from science as I could, although I, I still really enjoy science um, and majored in international relations. My uh, advisor at Stanford, it was actually Condoleezza Rice way before she was ever Secretary of State. Um, and I I majored in U.S. and Soviet relations. <laughs> it's an interesting uh, year and a half since uh, Trump's been around. But anyway, um, I, when I was going through that, because my work-study job ended up being four years of being the football manager for the, the team, which was not as good then as it is now, um, I was always around athletes and athletics and I lived with a bunch of athletes and I, I swam every day myself. And, um, I just sort of decided that's what I was interested in. They just didn't have that as an, an, a program, as an undergraduate program. So I took all the classes that were possible to me and exercise physiology and anything related. Um, and then I decided I would, uh, forego going to business school and get a master's in exercise physiology instead, which I did. And then I worked for a bit. I worked as a, an exercise specialist in a diabetes treatment center in San Francisco um, and then decided that I wanted to be able to do more than that. And I went back to school and got a PhD. And you don't have to have a PhD in order to um you know, understand what I do about exercising with diabetes, but that's sort of been the idea behind it. And I did a postdoc um, after I finished um, my time at Berkeley, um, working with a, a diabetes physician at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, and then um, had a couple of faculty positions. But I've always kind of focused on that area because it, it's just so important. Um, a lot of my research was actually in people with type 2 diabetes and not just type 1. Uh, for funding reasons and other reasons. But as far as it, I look at it, they, anybody with diabetes can benefit from being physically active. And it's just a little trickier somehow to manage blood glucose when you have um, to take insulin and, and balance that out with food and, and trying to prevent getting uh, hypoglycemia. But 
um, it, actually 40% of the, uh, close to 40% of the people who um, have type 2 also end up on insulin at some point. So it's not like it's just um, exclusive to people with type 1. It's just that the people with type 1 have to take it, and some of the type 2s have other uh, medication alternatives. So Exactly. Well, so that actually kind of caveats into my very first question is, if you Google Dr. Sherry Kohlberg, everything, almost everything will start saying diabetes and motion and motion and diabetes. And those two words are, you know, the number one and number two hits when you, you know, Google you. Can you talk a little bit about why it's so important that you think diabetics are active, physically active, you know, in all facets of their life, but also a little bit about like the specific things you point to to show that, you know, like the, maybe like the scientific indicators that say like, this is why diabetics, diabetics need to be so active. Oh, well, <clears throat> it, interestingly enough, uh, the things that you have to do live to live long and well with diabetes are the exact same things that you ha- really have to do to live long and well, period, yeah. <laughs> whether you yeah. have diabetes or not. So, um, you get all the same benefits as anyone else does who's more physically active. You have improvements in in circulation. You have basically a stronger heart. You have less plaque formation in your um, arteries. You have um, just a, a greatly enhanced mental function. You, you you just get around all the the things that happen to you when you're a couch potato. <laughs> um the thing is that sometimes with diabetes, because there's the that whole having to balance out medications with food and whatever, it can be a lot harder. And um, in fact, the, I think the top reason why some people with type 1 diabetes don't exercise is fear of hypoglycemia. And, you know, it just can be a lot harder to manage if you have exercise as an added variable. So that that's unfortunate that it it's a little bit more challenging. So it makes people want to shy away from it. But I think that the uh, research shows that being physically active is actually even more important when you have a chronic condition like diabetes because it can help manage health, it can help prevent complications, and it can actually improve some complications. There's some limited studies that show even improvement in neuropathy in people's feet when they become more physically active rather than less. So um, the body was built to move, not to sit around, and so you get so many benefits just from being active, being on your feet, moving all day long. All the people I interviewed for another one of my books that were long living people with, with both types of diabetes had in common that they were physically active in one way or another. Not all of them did, you know, structured programs of exercise. Some were just active on their job or, you know, moving around all day long for right. other reasons. So, um, I think it's pretty well documented at this point. <laughs> it's good for people with diabetes to be physically active as long as well as the uh, the rest of the population. And so you, you hear this a lot, and I know I've heard it a lot since I got diagnosed, and this may seem like an overly simplified question, but when people talk about having good glucose control or blood sugar control because of their exercise, what does that really mean? Like what is an indicator of good glucose control? Uh, you know, that kind of varies with with. Uh, the person that you talk to, I guess in my own personal book, having adequate control means that I've got an A1C that's 6.5 or lower and that I try to minimize the big swings in my glucose because for number one, they just make you feel crappy. <laughs> it wants to go up and then down and roller coaster all over the place. Exactly. Um, 
And number two is it just makes it hard to do what you want to do. If you, you're always having to adjust or stop what you're doing um, because you get low or you're too high or, you know, it just interferes with living your life the way you want to live if you can't manage it. So, I mean, I've heard a lot of people give ranges that probably the one I hear most often is to, to kind of keep your glucose in an 80 to 180 range. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and there's nothing magical about those numbers. Uh, you know, you could pick whatever works for you. I know people with pumps, some of them, they get them an alert whenever they, or a CGM, they'll set it to alert whenever they go above 150. It just allows them to catch it sooner and maybe manage it better. Um, but it's kind of whatever works for you. Yeah. Do you use a pump in a CGM or are you still on MDI? No, I'm, I'm actually device free at the moment. It just, it sounds funny. I mean, I've tried pretty much every regimen, every, most devices over the years. I'm coming up on my 50th anniversary with the ABDS this summer. So congratulations. Thanks. Yeah. I'm looking forward to getting the medals. It'll be (laughs) fun. Um, I, I personally have problems using devices. I, when I used insulin pumps, I got a lot of scar tissue where I had the infusion sites and that would mess up my blood glucose and then the site would go bad and I, I would spend the whole day battling down my my uh, insulin resistance. And because pumps only give short-acting insulin, you don't have any basal if your pump site goes bad. And right. I, I would prefer to actually have a longer-acting insulin on board that always gives me some basal or background insulin. In fact, I've known people who use a pump that also still inject with a basal insulin and just use the pump for um, meals and correction just for convenience. So, you know, I, um, I've thought about that too sometimes. You know, it sometimes it just, seems I, like it would be I nicer. Actually, um, you know, I, I know what I'm doing uh, after this many years and being in the field and whatever. Um, and I, my A1Cs actually started to creep up when I was on a pump instead of going the other way. Cause you really have to be smarter than your pump and your, your equipment has to work perfectly. I mean, sometimes I've got in the sun <laughs> and the insulin would get spoiled. And then by the time you figure it out, it's not working, you're yeah. already in the three hundreds and then it takes you hours, or at least me hours to battle it back down. And it just got annoying. So when I um, I wore one pump for three years and another one for a year when I was consulting for a, can- a company that's now going belly up, um, I didn't like their – it was like their first-generation model, the pump, and I was so frustrated with it at the end of the year. Um, I'm purposely not saying the name of it. Um, at the year that I did the consulting for them that I, I – I went to my doctor and I said, I'm going off of this. She's like, are you sure? I'm like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I started my pump vacation in 2002 um, and I'm still on it. I did try CGM twice, um, Dexcom both times. And for me, it's just not accurate enough. Um, for example, it, there's a big difference between being 60 and 90. Um, and the CGM doesn't always pick up that difference very well. And it'll alarm all night when I'm not low and it'll be telling me I'm not low when I'm feeling low. You know, there's big difference. We need to try to stay in a really tight range. Um, and, and I had the same issues with my CGMs not working. Like, um, I don't know if it's just my skin doesn't like having stuff in it, scar tissue. I don't know. Um, so it doesn't work for everyone. Um, I actually even work with a group here in Santa Barbara where I live that is working on one of the uh, um, closed loop systems, one of the 
quote unquote, artificial pancreas systems. And I saw all the issues they had with it, with their, their subjects and, and whatnot. Um, and they tried to recruit me to into one of their studies as a subject. And I, I said, are you sure? You know, cause I can't get pumps to work on me long-term. I can't get CGM. I mean, it's not going to work for me ever as a, as a, an alternative system because it's just, the devices have limitations and with me, I have even more. So, you know, don't feel bad if you don't go and use these devices. It's not like you cannot manage diabetes without it. Um, I said, you have to be smarter than your pump anyway. Um, Your CGM device, you have to use enough common sense to realize that it says you're, I remember I swam with mine on one time and then um, got to the end and it had gone from saying it was around 100 up to like 290. And I'm like, I am not 290. Stop telling me that crap. Yeah, mine's mine's (laughs) Um, lied to me too in the middle of a run. It's kind of frustrating because it'll get in your head and then you start to wonder like, well, is it really right? Or am I just totally off my own perception of my blood sugar today, you know? So I, I don't know if it helped me having 18 years where I didn't have a meter, where I'm just very sensitive. I can tell you the glycemic index of anything <laughs> without yeah. having a meter because just how it makes me feel. And the same thing with exercise. I can, I have some, you know, everybody has his or her own set of symptoms that, that come up during exercise. Like I was swimming um, yesterday and I started getting really fatigued and at first, I thought, well, maybe it's because I didn't swim for a month because the pool was closed. We had the fires in, near me in Santa Barbara, um, and the pool wasn't accessible, and the air was horrible. I couldn't go outside for two weeks. So I thought, well, maybe it's that. So I'm reacting differently. I don't usually get low when I swim because of the time of day, and I know how I, what I'm doing. <laughs> but um, then I started thinking, now, you know, I'm getting the same thoughts I get when I'm getting low, like, oh, gosh, how much time do I have to go? This is horrible. I'm so tired, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I gave it about five more minutes. I use the technique where you can try to sprint to raise your glucose, um, and that actually helped for a little while. But then I start feeling it again. I'm like, eh, I'm going to have to get out. It's so annoying. You know, to so I've, never, I've never used that technique before, like, oh, I'm feeling low. I'm just going to go harder. Yeah, it actually does work as long as you don't have too much insulin on board. If you have yeah. too much insulin, like you just gave three units because you were eating and then you went to work out and you start getting low, it doesn't work then. But if you know you're on basically basal insulin, it works really well. Well, that's kind uh, of a tool bag. Yeah. Um, not long term, just short term. It works long enough yeah. to get to the end of your workout or whatever. You just try sprinting as much as you can until you can't sprint anymore. And then it, it, it causes an exaggerated release of those glucose-raising hormones like adrenaline and glucagon. So, But anyway, I forget where this, this story was rambling on from. But, well, um, I had a quick question. I'll interrupt you yeah. before we move on from it. Do you know why insulin causes scar tissue? I mean, it makes sense that one side trying to absorb all this insulin over the course of three or four days before you change your, or two to four days, depending on when you change your infusion site. But why does it scar tissue? Like, why does it harden necessarily? Um, Well, I think it has, and and if you stop using that spot, it goes away. Mm -hmm. Um, But it has to do with how the cells around uh, where the insulin shows up respond to that. I mean, fat, fat actually can, insulin causes fat uh, to pick up and store more fat. So I think what it does, because you have such a high concentration of insulin in that one area that it causes the, the uh, fat cells around that area where the infusion site is to 
pick up extra fat and it just, you get a kind of a little lump there mm, because right. of it. And so if you stop infusing insulin in that spot, the, the cells start to release some of the excess that it put in there. But um, that's the only explanation I can think of. I, I haven't ever seen anybody actually address that. But Yeah, because I've looked into that. it before and I, I wasn't necessarily able to find an answer. And there's a lot of like tidbits of diabetes that you can look into and you're really not going to get an answer on. Yeah, so it's not really scar tissue because it goes away. I mean, wherever I had the problems with my infusion sites, when I stopped u- using the um, pump, the, those areas all went away, all the little nodules and everything, they're all gone. So of course, yeah. it kind of resolves on its own. It's just interesting because um, at rest, your body needs insulin to take up glucose out of the bloodstream and keep it all normal. Um, but there, so there are several t- tissues that are insulin sensitive, muscle being one of them, obviously, um, fat cells being another one. And then the third really is the liver is, is sensitive to the levels of insulin. There isn't a lot of insulin that gets to the liver and somebody who has to take insulin um, because it's not delivered into the body normally. And therein lies all the problems with exercising when you have type 1 diabetes. You can't deliver insulin normally. I mean, if you give it under your skin, either injection or pumping, it's not where insulin would normally be delivered in your body. It would normally be damped out of the pancreas, and then it would go into the circulation for the liver. And the first place it would go is the liver, and then it tells the liver what to do because the liver kind of looks at how much insulin it's getting after a meal, and then it's balanced out by glucagon, which will have the opposite effect um, in telling the liver whether to store glucose or release glucose or whatever. That all gets messed up because you don't ever have that normally high glucose, high insulin thing after you eat a meal, right at the level of the liver. It's We give our insulin peripherally. Um, so under the skin, it gets to get absorbed. So we've had high levels of insulin all around the rest of our body, not in the liver. So you can never be physiologically perfectly normal <laughs> when, until they figure out some way to deliver insulin uh, through the portal vein. Yeah. So that's incredible because I don't think anyone had ever explained that to me either. And I don't think I've looked it up because sometimes I try not to get too deep in the rabbit hole about diabetes online. <laughs> it's one of the reasons that your book was awesome because, you know, I can order this and dive just into, you know, being a diabetic athlete and not get all of the negative, you know, weird stuff that comes along with trying to Google these things online. So <clears throat> yeah, that's incredible. It could definitely be overwhelming. Yeah. So, so the other reason, um, let me tell you the other reason why that matters. Um, and why, whether you're on basal insulin or you just gave some extra. Um, and that's because during exercise, you actually have two different ways that you take up glucose from your bloodstream. The first one is the insulin that works at rest. Obviously, any insulin that's still floating around in your bloodstream during exercise will also cause you to take up glucose out of your bloodstream. But contractions by themselves, muscle contractions when you're exercising, um, are an independent way that our body picks up blood glucose. So what happens is you not only have uh, you not have just one mechanism, which is the insulin, which is too high because it's peripheral for us, but now you have contractions taking up blood glucose. And they did studies about I don't know a decade and a half ago and found out that these two mechanisms are completely separate and additive. So you don't have just one thing that's lowering your glucose. You have two things that are taking it down during exercise. Is there a percentage that it stops? Like, so let's say you run a mile and for that first mile, all the muscles associated with running are starting to pick up the glucose that's in your bloodstream. 
does it eventually plateau? Uh, I, I think it has to do. Uh, it has to do with a number of things. It has to do with how much insulin is circulating in your bloodstream at that time. So if you're on basal insulin, you're better off overall because you don't. Normally, what happens if you don't take insulin, if you don't have diabetes, your body will reduce insulin release during exercise. So your insulin levels will go down. So you want to try to have to have a more normal physiological response. You have to have your insulin levels as low as as possible during an activity, especially if it's extended. Um, and the other thing is uh, that uh, I forgot my train of thought. What was I talking about? <laughs> Sorry. Um, I had this all lined out, but. Um, well, here, I'll give you a break and I'll ask a question that I've been wondering. Okay. So one of the struggles that I have now, and it's funny that you mentioned that you have friends that have a pump, but use like a slow acting insulin for their basal rates throughout the day. For a diabetic runner, what do you think would be, I want to say, what, what do you think would be statistically the most beneficial in terms of insulin regimens? And not to tell, not to be giving advice to anyone to change their insulin regimens, but just what do you think would be most beneficial for a diabetic runner? Slow acting insulin to cover your runs or wearing your pump and having that fast acting insulin? Well, the thing is that... <clears throat> A pump, even though it's using fast acting, it gives it as a basal insulin. It gives it little background amounts all the time. So it doesn't necessarily end up being any higher levels of insulin or it, it, it acts about the same as a long acting one. I, my point about the pump is that if something goes wrong and the pump isn't giving you the insulin like it's supposed to, that's when you have problems because you don't have any background insulin yeah. uh, in your system still. So I think either one actually would work. Um, the pumpers I know who run will do things like um, put in a temporary basal rate that's lower than normal, where it, it allows you to immediately change the basal that you have, um, which is a nice feature. Yeah, you're not stuck with all of it on board. Yeah, yeah. If you give, um, if you use Lantus or Levamir, or uh, there's a, a, a new Toshiba. Ugh. Yeah, no, no, there's, there's also Basiglar, which is the same as Atlantis, uh, but made by another company. It's the same um, molecule. But there was a, a new uh, insulin that also got. Yeah. Uh, well, I just ask because I know that they metabolize different. And I've always, I, I tend to ask yeah. people kind of what their insulin yeah, measurements I are think, like. Cause... Um, the, well, the one benefit of Atlantis is there's some uh, information that suggests that it, it allows the release of um, uh, IGF-1, which is basically a factor that allows you to restore muscle more effectively after workouts, and that some of the, the short-acting insulins don't um, promote the release of IGF-1. Insulin growth factor 1 uh, is getting a little technical, but no, that's so perfect. people that are on pumps may not have the same response to training because of that. Um, in fact, the funny little tidbit, um, prior to one of the Olympics, a friend of mine who's a distance runner, type one, uh, got approached by, uh, one of the, the sprinter's husbands who was trying to get some Lantus off of her because he wanted to use the Lantus, um, to promote the, the IGF-1. Uh, you can get kicked out of the Olympics for using insulin if you don't need to take insulin. <laughs> couldn't so, that, couldn't that kill a normal person? Um, 
yeah, but a lot of times because it's basal and it's not absorbed all at once, the body just responds by putting out more glucose. But yeah, yeah, you could certainly kill yourself doing that. Um, Sounds dangerous. <laughs> so getting back to which one is better, I don't know if Levamir has the same, uh, causes the same release of the IGF-1. Um, and I know that the uh, rapid acting insulins don't. So uh, if I were going to choose, I would pick Lantus or Basiglar or, or something that's a, like that. Um, the thing is that with Lantus, although in, in people they tell you it can last 24 hours, my experience with it is that it does not last 24 hours if you t- take small doses. The uh, absorption is affected by the, the rate, it, well, basically how big of a dose you give at any one time. Um, if you get a bigger dose, it lasts longer than a smaller dose. But even when I started using it years ago, I, uh, I talked to one of the representatives of the company that makes Lantus. And I said, you know, I've noticed it does not last 24 hours on me. Um, is there research on that? And they said, yeah, I know it could last anywhere actually from 16 hours to, you know, 30 hours or more, but, uh, it's sort of dose dependent. And so people who are very insulin sensitive and don't take a lot, they will find that it does not last 24 hours and they need to split the dose. So I actually use Lantus still. Actually, I switched to Basilar for insurance purposes because they stopped um, covering the Lantus at the same rate. It's basically the same insulin. But um, what I do is I split the dose. I let my basil run it a little higher during the day because a lot of things I eat at a low glycemic index, which rapid acting insulins don't cover well. So... I'll run it a little higher during the day and take a smaller dose at night. But I will adjust those doses based on physical activity, doing more or less. I mean, pretty much they're set for me to be active. And if I'm not active, I have to change them more mm-hmm. so than I have to for being active. But Yeah, like your regimen is built around exercise. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so I, I found that that works pretty well. I probably do two-thirds in the morning and one-third you know, in the evening, about 12 hours later. And, um, that works okay for me, but if you, you know, use a pump, you can just adjust it whenever you want to exercise, you can shut the basal down or reduce it or, you know, adjust it afterwards or whatever. So it gives a little bit more flexibility, uh, with Traceba, I don't know a lot of people that have tried using it. I, I asked the company for information on, the duration and the effects of stacking if you want to exercise and what happens if you exercise multiple days in a row because you cannot adjust the dose quickly. Um, and that's my only concern. I did know somebody who was a runner who tried it and just kept getting low, 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 low and could not get out of it. So she switched back to um, something with a shorter duration. Was she a type one? Mm-hmm. Yes. Another question that I have, a big one that I've always wondered and I haven't researched it. And so forgive my ignorance if it's a dumb question, but why does running, well, I guess, why does all endurance, you know, why does endurance sport increase insulin sensitivity? Um, it, it mainly has to do with the use of muscle glycogen, which is the storage form of carbohydrates in muscle. And when you do, especially when you do a longer duration event, you use more of it. It's related both to exercise intensity, uh, faster, the harder you work, the faster you use it up, but longer duration, you're going to use more of it overall. And during that period of time, during which your body is trying to restore that carbohydrate in your muscle, you have a heightened insulin sensitivity. 
So that's the primary thing. And also um, just a training effect, you'll become better at, at um, using fat and metabolizing fat as well. And so it's it kind of a combination of those things. But um, the primary one is anytime, so you, for aerobic exercise, I always say you're only as good as your last bout of exercise you did. So if it was more than 48 hours ago, chances are you've restored most of the glycogen from that and your insulin sensitivity starts to decrease unless you do another bout of aerobic exercise. Now, the resistance training, it tends to have a more lasting effect simply because it ha- also has to do with how much muscle mass you have. And you tend to build more muscle mass with resistance training than you do with aerobic type training. And then just by having um, a larger muscle mass, you have a greater storage capacity for carbohydrates. So you want to, in order to really be sensitive, you have to not only increase or maintain the size of your muscle mass, but um, also keep those carbohydrate storage tanks halfway full all the time. Um, when they get full, you get insulin resistant. There's just nowhere for the carbohydrates to go into storage. So I've got your book and I've listened or I've kind of read a lot about the carbohydrate request, or I guess I want to say, I think it's read as diet for insulin pumpers. And then it kind of gives recommendations for carbohydrates prior to exercise. Where are you on, where are you these days on athletes specifically diabetic athletes that are doing like keto diets and low carb diets in terms of performance and diabetic uh, i guess success in athletes um well uh there's no doubt that your body can adapt to using um less carbohydrate and more fat i mean they've shown this in regular athletes who do training who don't eat a lot of carbs and it makes sense from a a survival point of view, think about what if you didn't have access to carbohydrates, you know, back when you caveman days and you had to eat just meat. <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't want to not be able to function. And so the body adapts to differences in diet. Um, however, having said that, knowing the physiology of the fuels that the body uses during exercise, unless you have carbohydrate available, you're not going to be able to do Uh, intense exercise as effectively and you won't be able to do super long duration unless you decrease the intensity of what you're doing, the speed at which you're going. So although I've heard a lot of athletes say they do just fine on keto diets and, you know, maybe it's good for marathoners or whatever, if you want to be a top marathoner, you have to eat more carbs. It just, there's just no getting around it. You cannot restore the um, carbohydrates as quickly if your diet is is lacking in carbs, the restoration rate for muscle glycogen is typically 5 to 7% per hour. But when they've done studies looking at what's the restoration rate when you you restrict carbohydrate intake, intake after exercise, and it, it's restored at a slower rate and it takes longer to fully restore it. So it can be anywhere from 2 to 72 hours to restore it, but it might even take longer than that if you are restricting your carbohydrate intake. So you just have to factor that in. You can still run um, long distances and whatnot, but you will probably never be at the peak of what you could do if you had more carbohydrates available. That's so funny you mentioned marathoners because I think one of the growing trends in ultramarathons is the keto diet. And not to call it a trend diet, but I just think it – I mean, the science does, like you said, kind of make sense, especially from a survival standpoint. 
but it is peculiar that it tends to be growing in the ultra scene over the road marathon scene. And I, th- I think that might just be a natural inclination of trail runners and ultra marathoners to lean towards a more holistic and plant-based diet. And so for them, it makes sense to just, you know, eat a little bit of meat, a lot of fat, a lot of vegetables. But, uh, you know, a plant-based diet typically is higher in carbs than you give it credit for. So I, the emphasis before on eating carbs, like <laughs> for events, having a, a carb-loading event, uh, carb-loading of all sorts is was overblown. Um, I think that I also taught nutrition for 19 years that you can probably get by with um, as low as 40% of your calories coming from carbohydrates, which is a lot lower than they normally recommend for you know training athletes, assuming you're eating enough calories overall. So as long as you're, you're not creating a calorie deficit, you can get by with a lower total. 40% is still adequate carbs. I mean, it's not like you have to be on a high carb diet in order to take in enough carbohydrates. I think people get confused because they'll say, oh, I'll eat more carbs. I have to be on high carb diet. That's not true. Um, You just have to take in adequate carbs. So I think that's where I'm at. I tend to not eat a lot of carbs, but I definitely don't eat no carb. Yeah. I I think a normal dinner for me and my family might be, you know, some vegetables and meat with no like actual bread or pasta or anything. But then the next morning I might have, you know, one slice of bread with some peanut butter or something, you know, I don't shy away from it. Yeah, I, I think that's probably the better way to go. It, there's nothing wrong with inherently wrong with carbs. It's just that so many of us that eat carbs that are not healthy for us, whether we have diabetes or not, not healthy. Um, you know, the highly refined carbs. Um, if you are going towards a more plant-based diet, you will get carbs in your foods. What you just don't want to do is, it just because it makes it hard to manage your glucose, is sit there and have a, a full plate of pasta. I mean, I can't manage that. <laughs> My plate is always half green vegetables of some sort. I mean, the yeah. entire half of it's broccoli, green beans, salad, it's something, you know, that it, it doesn't actually give me a whole lot of calories, but it's a big part of the, the bulk of the volume of what I eat. And then meats a little bit of it. And then maybe I'll have um, some pasta or some of it, but it's not a huge part of my meal. It's kind of like a side part of my meal yeah i always see carbs as like the more i'm eating throughout the day the more likelihood of me miscalculating the amount (laughs) you know so if you're eating giant giant amounts of carbohydrates let's say you're eating a giant bowl of pasta the likelihood of you miscounting your carbs is a lot higher than if you had broccoli with grilled chicken you know it is. And and the other thing is, it's just really hard because the way we have to administer in is insulin to get the timing of it just right. Even if you cut the total amount right, um, you know, the food is digested at a different rate, um, then the insulin peak might come before or after. In fact, um, all these years, people do carb counting. I do not carb count. Um, I think it's it's because and it's not that I'm unaware of the carbs in my diet. I am actually aware. I read labels and I've... Uh, had lots of years <laughs> to practice doing this, but if I followed the guidelines to take a certain amount of insulin for a certain number of carbs in my dinner, I would always get low before I get high later mm-hmm. because a lot of the carbs that I eat are lower glycemic index things. They might be yeah. beans, you know, um, things that are things that I take, I shy away from. I don't eat much of as rice. It doesn't matter whether it's whole grain or white. It, 
<clears throat> it always blasts my sugar. So I just don't eat much of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think if we I all actually, have those things that we avoid. <clears throat> right. So if I looked at the number of carbs and I gave the insulin right when I ate, I would get low <laughs> because of the way the insulins are now. The, the only thing I could say for the ones that, that we've evolved past, like regular, is that it was better at covering balanced meals than a lot of these short-acting ones are. I think I'm kind of like you. I tend to eat a lot of those, you know, those same foods. And sometimes I'm bad about pre-bolusing too early. And, you know, let's say I think like last night we had um, black bean and sweet potato tortillas. And they they were still a little bit higher in carb. But, you know, you talked about the glycemic index and those foods are kind of in that same range. I tend to pre-bowls too early. And so I'll give my insulin maybe like 30 or 45 minutes sometimes before I eat. And I'll forget what the type of food is. And then I'll realize 10 minutes after I've eaten that I'm low. But I know, yeah. that, if, I know that if I eat anything, I'm just going to rock it up later. And so I just kind of sit there sometimes yeah. and just so regret I, my decisions. I, I think it's having gone through three pregnancies where the goal was never to have your blood sugar go above 140. So I got in the, in the habit of checking both before and an hour after and sometimes two hours after, depending on what I'm eating, too. Um, and then adjusting after if I need to. Um, so what I, what I actually take food before I eat is um, right before or with breakfast because I still like to eat oatmeal. It's not a huge amount of oatmeal. It's it's light on the oats and heavy on the nuts and the fruit and <laughs> the other stuff in my my bowl. But that's just a, a higher carb load than I normally eat at any other time of day. And it's also a hard time of day to manage carbs. Um, so I'll actually take that one before I eat. But um, the rest of the time, I pretty much eat. And then based on what I ate and how much I ate, I'll take the insulin after. I only do it before if I check and I'm already a little higher than I would want to be. Then I'll give enough to cover that, but not the food. <laughs> and yeah. then I cover the food after I know exactly what I ate and how much I ate. And that gives me the flexibility of just eating what I want to eat and how much I want to eat. And then um, because of what I eat and the fact that it's lower glycemic index carbs and, and, you know, not no carb, but definitely lower in carb than a lot of other people eat, um, then I can avoid most of the time getting low before I get high later. later. And then sometimes I know just based on what I ate, it'll take two hours for it to kick in. And I'll give another amount of insulin about an hour after I eat, knowing it's going to continue to go up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Why is have, the morning time harder for carbs for diabetics? Um, it's actually harder for everybody, but it's because um, overnight you go typically eight hours without eating, and the body's response to you know keeping blood glucose normal that entire time is to release more uh, hormones that make us insulin resistant, and in particular cortisol, this uh, hormone that gets released. And so first thing in the morning before you eat, before you break your fast, you're somewhat insulin resistant just so your body can manage to to keep blood glucose normal. And then once you eat, break your fast, you um, you the levels of that hormone and others drop. And so you're not as insulin resistant. <clears throat> so a lot of people, it's funny, people with type 2 diabetes have come to me and said, you know, if I exercise first thing in the morning, 
you know, I have, or even people who type one, I have problems. My blood glucose goes up instead of down. I mean, and if I do the same exercise later in the day, I have the opposite problem. I'm like, well, so they're like, but I like exercising in the morning. What should I do? I'm like, well, just break your fast, eat something. Um, for type ones, it, because they have to take insulin, they sometimes have to eat something and take a tiny bit of insulin to cover it. Not normally what you normally cover something for. Yeah. Um, it type two is they just have to eat because they still release some of their own insulin and, and it breaks that fast and it drops the levels of cortisol and the insulin resistance breaks. That's so funny that you mentioned that because I've, you know, here I've been a diabetic this whole time and I didn't know that. And I, I've, it's funny because I've seen that. I've known that in the morning, like I have to run for my job in the morning. And so I'll come back home after a run and I know that I really can't eat anything sugary or heavy in carbs because I know that it's going to shoot my blood sugar up, even if I give the perfect amount right. of insulin and pre-bolus it 30 minutes out. Like yep. the morning is when I might have to pre-bolus an hour and a half before I drink, like let's say a recovery protein shake or anything that has any kind of sugar in it. It's kind of it's I, only that time of day. It's yeah. only that time of day. <laughs> That's so funny that you mentioned that. It's like one of the things that maybe we're all out there noticing on ourselves, but we're never correlating it to other people. So that's kind of cool. Yep. Um, yeah. And I'm the same way in the morning. Like I, there's been days where like I'll go for a run and I'm higher afterwards and I'm like, that is the weirdest thing, <laughs> you know? No, it's not, it's not weird at all. Just think about your body. You have to keep your blood glucose stable. And so your body has all these redundant mechanisms to do that. Like we have one, one hormone that lowers glucose insulin. We have five that raise it. Mm -hmm. That's because it's a lot more critical. You can still manage to do things when you're hyperglycemic but if you get low you can't do anything so it's a survival thing <laughs> again the body has redundant ways to raise glucose and only one way to lower it and so if you're really high though and you don't have any insulin you could still get rid of sugar from your bloodstream through the liver correct i mean you, you, you just urinate it out but you're not processing it yeah you can it's just that uh, if you try to exercise when you're that high and you have ketones uh oftentimes what happens is you'll go higher because the you have kind of raging glucose raising hormones and nothing that's countering them so if you get really insulin deficient you can actually raise it make it go higher than yeah. if you uh, as long as you have some insulin on board you're okay so here's another question i've been wondering this for a while and i've asked multiple people and i don't think anyone's had like a really good source but i think you're it can you get ketoacidosis with normal blood sugars over the course of a long run? Let's say you run a marathon. Uh, yes, absolutely. You can get ketotic. Now, whether that results in DKA, that that is a different question. Ah. So it's actually come up quite a bit recently because of the use of the this new class of medications, which are generally prescribed for type 2, but some people with type 1 have been taking them. They... Um, the ones that make you pee out extra sugar, they're actually called sodium glucose transporter one inhibitors. Mm -hmm. um, and they work on the level of the kidney so that instead of uh, resorbing glucose that's flowing through the blood that goes to the kidney, your body pees it out. Um, and so it'll, it, it, it kicks in whenever you reach a certain threshold, which is somewhere around, I don't know, 180 to 200, where you will start spilling sugar into your urine normally, but it will make you pee out any excess sugar beyond that, that point. Um, it works really well. Uh, it's kind of like cheating to me. It seems like, oh, you know, I'm going to eat this pizza. And I'm going to take this pill. It's going to make me pee out any extra sugar. So, um, but 
what they've noticed in people with type 1 is that they can develop diabetic ketoacidosis at a perfectly normal blood glucose level when they're using this medication, which is this really scary thing. That is terrifying. Um, but ketones by themselves are not necessarily going to be a bad thing. That That's the, the whole idea behind a ketotic diet. I mean, the ketones bodies are just the, the body's attempt to uh, create energy that can be used a different way when there's not enough carbohydrate available. Uh, without getting into all the physiological pathways, I'll just explain that in order to use carbohydrates effectively, you have to have enough fat to fill in the intermediates in the pathway. So basically, I always say carbohydrate burns in a, um, uh, uh, fat, or the fat burns in a carbohydrate flame. So you need the, if I said that opposite, I'm sorry, but it, it basically you have to use carbohydrates effectively, uh, fats effectively, you still have to have some carbohydrate available. And that's why when you hit the wall and your glycogen runs out, um, it can be problematic. Yeah, you start to bonk. Yeah. If I'm on a pump, and so let's say I take off my pump and I've been running for two hours and I want to go eat a goo gel because I know that my blood sugar is one, either low or I'm just hungry and I need some substance. Could I hours, be okay? Two hours, gets to be, two hours, if you're on a pump, two hours without insulin gets to be a long time. Yeah. What I've usually recommended to people in the past is if you're going to take your pump off, reconnect every hour and give yourself half the basal you lost during that hour. If you go more than two hours, then you can start to develop DKA. Because you don't have any basal. Now, if you're on a basal insulin, you get around that problem. You don't have to worry about that. Yeah, you don't have to connect and disconnect from your pancreas. Right. Um, Well, no, even if you take a long-acting insulin, it's still going to – some of it's still going to be around during that period of time when you're not taking – you're taking in goose and everything, but you're not taking any other types of of insulin to cover it. And that works okay. But if you go more than about two hours without any insulin on board – it starts to get problematic. So you recommend every hour reconnecting and then giving half of the basal rate that I would have normally gotten. Right. Yeah. Regard Is that regardless of what I eat? So if like you had yeah. a marathon or that wanted to run. Regardless of what you eat, um, you still need, there's just a, a background need for some insulin in the body. Um, and so what if you're eating 30 grams of carbohydrates an hour, like as part of your nutrition plan for an event? Should you also you be bolusing for those or just kind of let that, let the basal rate? You may not need to bolus for that at all because of the contraction induced mechanism we have that allows us to take up glucose. And so that's consistent. So consistently, let's say for a marathon, you're going to consistently, because of the contractions of the muscles, you're going to draw glucose into your muscles. Yeah, you're going to take some up, but you still need some background insulin. Unfortunately, you can't go down to zero. Um, yeah. Go down to zero, then you, you have problems. Uh, so it's, it's tricky trying to figure out the exact amount, um, of Yeah. And of insulin. course it's different. It's different for everybody. So, yeah. And, and then I'm just thinking it's for some other events. Some athletes who have done the, the race across America, the cycling event have told me that, you know, they'll have two or three hours when they have to cycle really hard and then they'll be taking in carbohydrates during that period of time. But interestingly, if they, even if they, they reduce the basal or shut down the basal on their pump over the course of two or three hours, they find they start having to add some insulin back in, um, basal insulin back in. And then when they get to the end of their ride, they have this dumping syndrome. Like they actually finally digest the rest of the food they've been consuming during this period of time Mm -hmm. and their glucose shoots up when they're done. Um, and so they need to take extra insulin at the end of it. I've seen that too, after a run, 
it's like you're not doing anything, but it can start creeping up, especially if I've eaten within that past hour. Because I think, exactly. like, yeah, like you said, sometimes food will sit in your stomach a little yeah, dormant because so there's no blood flowing to it, or at least there's right. not as much flowing to it. Yeah, you're not absorbing it as quickly or as well while you're exercising. Yeah. Well, so that kind of takes us into the last section. I appreciate all your time. And the kind of last thing that I'll like to do with my guests is something called tempo talk. And it's a bunch of random, hopefully quick questions that we'll be able to breeze through and you'll be able to say the first thing that comes to your mind and then I'll let you go. And thank you for all your time. Okay, let's go. And so real sugar or artificial sweetener. Um, I've been using artificial sweeteners my entire life because for me, sugar is harder to manage uh, with type 1 diabetes. Um, and I think in moderate amounts, either one can be okay. You just have to figure out how to manage your insulin effectively to for either one. Gym session or a nature walk slash hike? Ah, both, just at different times. <laughs> one in the morning, what is it? <laughs> exactly. No, I mean, you, I think doing all sorts of activities, a variety of activities is really good. Um, there are benefits of gym activities for certain reasons and nature walk for other reasons. So you need to like figure out time to do both of them. Favorite pre-workout meal? Uh, low glycemic index carbs. Um, <laughs> like, like what? Um, you know, I, I work out all different times of day, depending on the day. I, I tend to graze all day long rather than eating big meals. So, um, I don't probably oatmeal with fruit. Like bananas or blueberries? No, blueberries, raspberries, strawberries, low glycemic index fruit. If you're I like me, you stay. avoid bananas. I can't. I banana. avoid bananas, particularly that time of day is yeah. really bad, and never more than half a banana at a time. Favorite diabetic exercise piece of gear or equipment that you use, if at all? Because, yeah, so you don't use a CGM or a pump. Swimming so. suit. <laughs> oh, diabetic. <laughs> diabetic. Uh, um, a blood glucose meter. Yeah? Just like a, re- well, just a regular one. Yeah, just a regular one because I don't use CGM. I've I've used CGM during exercise and still found that because it lags behind, it's not that useful. I mean, I would be getting low during a workout, and then it would still say I'm at 120 or something because mm-hmm. it takes you know seven to twenty minutes to catch up. So yeah. I didn't actually even found it that useful. See, I think <laughs> I, think I sweat so much that mine's the opposite. Like I'm a pretty hot person yeah. naturally. And so it'll say I'm at 40, but really I know I'm at a hundred and it, yeah. like, it'll just, it'll it's have funny. arrows down. I, I did the a study, a, an actual research study on the very first um, CGM that was called a Gluca watch biographer. Mm-hmm. And it, it was a ridiculous piece of thing. It would actually leave these like round circles on your skin where it pulled up all the fluid, but um, it, it didn't work at all when you started sweating. It just totally killed it. <laughs> Favorite food you would eat a huge portion of if you were not a diabetic? Oh, if I were, I, I don't have any. I've had it so long and from such a young age, I don't have. Um, I don't really have many foods that wouldn't fit into my diet now that I like to eat. I did eat Fruit Loops when I was four years old and I was very sad about having to give those up. 
<laughs> so it sounds like maybe a giant bowl of Fruit Loops. I've tried, I've tried Fruit Loops as an adult because you know you can cover it with insulin, and I so I'm like, ooh, these are gross. So, <laughs> um, probably dark chocolate. Ooh. So you said dark chocolate. I'm thinking like a molten fudge sundae that like you bite into and just spills all over the plate and you're not a diabetic. So you just eat like a ridiculous portion of it. But, um, you know, it's funny because this is one of the questions I, I found out when I interviewed people who had diabetes a long time, those who were diagnosed before they had a blood glucose meter don't eat dessert. Those who were diagnosed afterwards with a meter and were told they can, they basically eat whatever they want to, as long as they cover it with insulin eat dessert. And I'm in the former category. I don't actually eat dessert. Never. Uh, uh, correct. Um, That's the sad. only things that I eat that are dessert-like are a piece of dark chocolate, mm-hmm. which I guess you could consider that dessert. Or I will eat um, cheesecake because I found a long time ago that that had much of a less impact on my blood glucose than regular types of cake or whatever. Yeah, old-time um, fat. And sometimes, yeah, exactly. Um, sometimes ice cream, but um, and I just don't really like ice cream that much. So uh, I usually just would love it if I could get a bowl of strawberries at a, a restaurant. It's hard to get them, though, where they don't glaze them with sugar or do something to them. <laughs> or dip them in chocolate, yeah. Yeah. Something you wish everyone knew about diabetes. Um, that most of the complications are preventable with a, a healthy lifestyle, whether you have type 1 or type 2. And and I think just people don't recognize the importance of, of being physically active in maintaining health. Advice for someone that is a diabetic and wants to start getting into endurance sports or maybe someone who's already a seasoned runner or swimmer and want or just got, and just got diagnosed. Um, I, I think knowledge is key. Uh, and sometimes that knowledge can come from other people who've been already doing the same activity and have some idea like, oh, you know, if you just adjust this or do that um, with your diabetes regimen, it makes it a lot easier. And, you know, just some of the tips that you, you might have learned today, just talking to me that you didn't know before. Absolutely. Why it responds the way it does. It, those things can be so valuable when you start out. Um, that's actually why I, I originally, the, the very first book I ever wrote was a, an earlier version of Diabetic Athlete's Handbook. And I had gone to a meeting in 1990 of the now defunct um, International Diabetic Athletes Association. And people were talking about, hey, you know, I go play soccer. This is what I do. I, you know, I take this much insulin and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, wouldn't it really be good if we had all this knowledge in one place that would help people? I mean, not that you don't have to do trial and error for your own self, but give them a starting place to do different activities and some understanding of why their body would react the way what does to one activity and differently to another one. That was the whole basis for it, getting knowledge out there. Yeah. And for anyone who's curious about what Dr. Sherry's talking about, the Diabetic Athlete's Handbook, which you can get, I think I got it on Amazon. You could buy it on her website. There's a lot of individual testimonials in there as to like exactly what individual athletes do in order to control their diabetes under a million different circumstances. If you literally want to do anything, I guarantee you it's in that book, whether it's walking a 5k to, you know, running a marathon or, you know, playing soccer at any age, like she was just mentioning. So, um, I know that I was just looking at that before the interview and a lot of my questions we kind of talked about today. You know, it's not in there. People came to me afterwards and they're like, they're like trying to get me because they're like a hundred plus activities and they're like, what about curling? (laughs) <laughs> I'm like, oh, darn, I don't have curling. I didn't know actually curling was a sport. 
<laughs> um, and I didn't know any athletes with diabetes who were curling at the time. I'm, sure, a, there's, I'm sure there's another uh, sport in there that they could compare Yeah, no, to. there are. There are a couple other they've stumped me on, too. I'm like, oh, darn, no. You know, just look up this. It's sort of like that, you know. But yeah. <laughs> Well, Dr. Sherry, thank you so much for being on the show. Sure, my pleasure. Hey, guys, that wraps up today's interview. Once again, if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to the show. It's the perfect way to make sure you get fresh episodes delivered straight to your phone every Monday. Also, make sure to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at The Diabetic Running Podcast, or visit me at thediabeticrunningpodcast.com. If you think you or anyone you know would be a perfect interviewee for the show, make sure to reach out to me on any of those platforms and tell me a little bit about the story you think that we should share. Once again, guys, thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you guys again next week. Happy training. Happy training.